May I turn you to the book of Revelation, <clears throat> the last book of the Bible, and chapter 8, <clears throat> the eighth chapter of the book of Revelation. And when he opened the seventh seal, there followed a silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels that stand before God, and there were given unto them seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood over the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should add it unto the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel taketh the censer, and he filled it with the fire of the altar and cast it upon the earth. And there followed thunders and voices and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels that had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And the first sounded. We just bow together in the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, when we come to your word, we need all the grace and the power to really speak your word so that it is a communication of something from your heart. We want, Lord, together to open our hearts to you and just to confess that we need you, Lord. We need you in the speaking of the word and we need you in the hearing of the word. That this time may be uh, Lord, a very important time and a valuable time for your interest, for the interests of your kingdom. Make it such, we pray, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. I don't know whether you think that uh, in turning to the uh, book of Revelation, um, you're going to get... Um, a, a marvelous or a unique interpretation um, of this passage that we have read together. I think there must be a thousand interpretations um, of the book of Revelation. And it was not my purpose when the Lord drew me to this passage to try and interpret it in any one of those ways. But I want to speak this evening concerning the prayer battle for Israel. And I have no doubt in my mind uh, that the real battle has to be fought and won in the secret place. Many people do not understand the mystery of real intercession. Uh, for them, Intercession is just a question of pouring out a few petitions to God. But intercession is the deepest form of prayer. It doesn't require your lips only. 
nor does it require so many minutes of a day. Not even a day out of a week or a day out of a month. Intercession requires you, spirit, soul, and body. 24 hours of every one of the 365 days of the year. That is why there is so little real intercession. And that is why in many ways there is sometimes such a paralysis in the Lord's work. I have often pointed out to believers how remarkable the words are in Daniel chapter 9. You will remember that Daniel understood by the words of the prophet Jeremiah that there were 70 years decreed, 70 years of captivity decreed for Jerusalem. And then he did a quite remarkable thing. Having discovered by the word of God's book, given a generation earlier that God had ordained 70 years of captivity for Jerusalem and for the Jewish people, and having understood by the Spirit, what many Christian and Jewish scholars have been unable to really understand when that 70 years began, because there was only 50 years of actual exile, having understood by the Spirit when it began, he realized that he was almost toward the end of that time. And then he began to seek the Lord with fasting, with supplication, in sackcloth. I suggest that is quite remarkable. Most people today, most believers today, feel that they are superior to the Old Testament saints. Uh, they feel, well, those poor ones, they didn't really understand. But sometimes I find that some of the Old Testament saints understood far more about the purpose of God and the principles that lie at the heart of God's working than we in the New Covenant. Be it said to our shame. Very often if we discover that something's going to happen, we say there's no need to pray for it. If God has said it's going to happen, there's no need to pray for it. Sackcloth and fasting, day after day, when God has already said it's going to happen, you don't need to waste your time. We can just praise the Lord. If Daniel had thrown a banquet, and had a praise session, and no more, there wouldn't have been a return. 
That is the mystery of intercession. Why does God insist that somewhere or other his servants pray into being what he's already ordained should be? <laughs> you get it? It is the mystery of intercession. Until we have faced the essential mystery of real prayer, we never become intercessors. Daniel was suddenly caught up in the goings of God. I don't think for a single moment that dear Daniel, although he was a statesman in one of the greatest empires the world uh, has ever known, I don't think for a single moment he realized that he was caught up in the goings of God in quite the manner that he was. But he set into motion things in the unseen that, that even he had to lie down when, he was when it was finally revealed to him. It was such a shock. You will remember that for three whole weeks he began to pray. And he not only prayed on the basis, on the basis of what Jeremiah had prophesied by the Spirit of God would happen. He also had another revelation that King Solomon had prophesied at the dedication of the temple that wherever those people of that covenant were scattered, because of their sin, because of their transgression, because of their disobedience, if wherever they were scattered to the ends of the earth, they would turn towards the place where God had caused His name to dwell and would humble themselves and confess their sin and pray that God would forgive then God would hear from heaven, would forgive them, would cleanse them, and would draw them back to their land. And so Daniel not only understood what the Holy Spirit had prophesied through Jeremiah, he also understood that he had to, as it were, outwardly, concretely express his faith. And so he opened the shutters of his windows, which were on the west side of his house. <laughs> and every time he prayed, dear old Daniel went and unlocked the shutters and flung them open. For three weeks he prayed, vehemently, fervently, from the heart, with tears confessing the condition of the people, confessing the transgression and the disobedience in which he included himself, and pleading with God for forgiveness. But it seemed as if his prayer did not go above the ceiling, as if it was all trapped within. I have no doubt the enemy must have come to Daniel and said, Daniel, don't be so stupid. Of course heaven's not hearing your prayer. Of course you're having a bad time. Of course it's all very heavy. It's because you're praying wrongly. You don't need to pray this kind, pray this kind of prayer. God has already said it will happen anyway. But Daniel went on. 
For some of you know, if you know the chronology of Daniel, you will know that the lion's den and Daniel's prayer ministry in chapter 9 are connected. In other words, hell itself was extremely disturbed by Daniel's prayer ministry. Didn't mind believers in synagogues. Didn't mind believers reading the Bible. Didn't mind them having little songs to sing or all of us. But if that man Daniel starts to get on his knees and opens his windows towards heaven and prays into being what God has prophesied to Jeremiah, it may just be that it will bring a collapse in our defenses. So the powers of darkness put into the head of certain uh, Persian leaders to go to the king and to say to him, although he loved Daniel, not to mention Daniel, but to say, oh king, wouldn't it be a good idea if we had a month without prayer? And I imagine the old king thought, oh, all that prayer that goes on to all the idols, a thousand and one of them all around here, I should think it would be a marvelous idea not to have prayer. And then they said, well, we think it would be a marvellous idea if all petitions were addressed to you, your majesty, for one month. And the king said, well, now, that sounds very interesting. And so they said, well, here's the, um, here's the decree, sign it. And so he said, well, yes, I think I will. And he signed it. And then the powers of darkness had a jubilee. Oh, they thought, we have now got Daniel in our grip. That man won't stop praying. He'll just go on. So they waited for the next session. And sure enough, out came the old bony hands of Daniel. He was nearly 80 or 85. Out they came and unshuttered the shutters and opened the shutters. And he began his prayer ministry, and they listened carefully with witnesses, and rushed off to the king. Then the king was unhappy. You know the whole story. Because the king loved Daniel. He, I think, would have been prepared to sacrifice a thousand of the others for that one man, Daniel. He knew what a lot of hot air they all were. But he couldn't do it. Because the whole kingdom was under the so-called rule of law. And once the king had signed it, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, it could not be altered or changed. So Daniel was for the lion's den. And I imagine when they finally got hold of Daniel, Daniel said, oh my goodness, I'm not through. My prayer ministry wasn't the least bit bothered about all the things to do with the state. But my prayer ministry, now what's going to happen? So I suppose on the way to the lion's den, he must have thought in his heart, now Lord, do you want me to come home via the lions? <laughs> or do you want to shut the mouths of the lions so that this prayer ministry can be fulfilled? And it must have been from heaven immediately the Lord thought, well, I could bring home any number of my people via the lions, but not Daniel. Because Daniel has got an understanding of the way I want things done. So faith was given to Daniel to shut the mouths of the lions. And I don't quite know how it happened, except it says in Hebrews 11, that by faith they shut the mouths of lions. I suppose he went in and looked at them all and said, Now all you pussycats... <laughs> 
just be just roll around and purr and everything else, but you can't eat me. I am not for the eating. It was D.L. Moody who said that uh, suddenly when the clock struck, he took out his watch and said, my word, it's time for prayer. And there in the midst of all the sleeping lions, he went on with his prayer ministry. The fact of the matter is, he saw the people back to Jerusalem. He didn't, as far as we know, return with them, but he saw them go back. All those others were the meal for the lions, and Daniel was made the president of the greatest empire that the world had hitherto known. Now, my dear friends, isn't it an amazing thing when we start to get involved in the fulfillment of God's purposes? Can you really believe that people like you and me could be involved in the actual realization and fulfillment of the purposes of God, not only for the nation in which we're found, but for the nations? And even more important, for the heart of the matter, for the house of God, for the body of the Lord Jesus, for the true church of God, for God's Israel. Now, my dear friends, if that is so, I find it very, very exciting because Daniel went on for his three weeks of prayer and nothing seemed to happen. And I don't know whether he went into the lion's den and came back out during that period. But anyway, at the end, the angel of the Lord appeared. I will not say that he was looking a bit tattered, but when he got to Daniel, he said to Daniel, Daniel, you are so greatly loved by heaven. The very first day you opened your mouth and began to humble yourself before God, God said, I've heard Daniel's prayer and I was sent to you. But on the way, I got into a conflict. Now, I know it sounds almost incredible, but you read the story yourself. I got into a conflict with the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. And they were having a great fight. And that's why I didn't get to you. So all that heaviness and difficulty and conflict was because something was happening in the unseen. Things had been set into motion by Daniel's prayer ministry that he wasn't even really conscious of. How interesting it is when we come to the last chapter of that greatest of all letters, which marks in my understanding the high water mark of revelation in the Bible, the Ephesian letter. And when we've gone through that tremendous uh, revelation of the eternal purpose of God from before times eternal to the eternal ages to come, and when he's talked about all kinds of ways in which that purpose has to be concretely expressed in the church, in the building up of the church, in member to member, and then to husband to wife, and wife to husband, and parents to children, and children to parents, and employer to employee, and employee to employer. 
He finally says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. This isn't something for the elite. This isn't some luxury experience given to only those who are very, very special. This is for every member of the church at Ephesus. From the youngest and the poorest and the most ignorant spiritually to the greatest in the Lord. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You don't think the enemy is just going to let the purpose of God be fulfilled willy-nilly? If there is something that is of tremendous importance to God, of tremendous importance to the kingdom of heaven, it is not just going to happen. This world lies in the evil one. There are spiritual forces in this world. And they are going to be motivated by pride and anger and antagonism to destroy any possibility of that purpose of God being fulfilled. My friends, it's not only Muslims that are fatalistic. Thousands upon thousands of Christians are as fatalistic as Muslims. They say, oh, no, 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 there's no need to get excited about all these things. When the Lord comes, he comes. If God's going to do something, he's going to do it. My friend, it is a lie. Don't ask me why God insists that you and I should be involved. But he does. Actually, if the Lord wants to, he can raise up children, sons of Abraham, from the stones to praise him. He can do anything. I don't belong to that ilk that believe that God is limited. You know that our will limits him. I'm sorry, I just don't belong to it, so forgive that digression for one moment. I believe that God can do anything. There's not a thing that God can't do. Why he has said, I will not do it. Not unless you get into my revealed purpose and pray it into being, then I'll do it. So he says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against the powers, against the world rules of this darkness, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Did you hear that? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. But my dear friends, most of us are wrestling against flesh and blood. We think so, so, such and such is the real problem in our church. So and so is the real problem. We get rid of so and so and we get somewhere. Or we think, oh, the, the, the secular humanists in society, if we could just get our hands on them and somehow get them out of the nation, everything would be all right. My friends, that's not that's not the, the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is this. Flesh and blood is being manipulated by spiritual forces. And unless you and I go behind the scene, we can get rid of two or three people. But the problem will occur and reoccur and reoccur and again and again and again until it breaks up the whole thing. We have to go behind the scenes. The devil has wiles. He is not some imbecile, empty-headed, with a forked tail, 
And all we have to do is make a noise and he runs for like mad. It is nonsense. He's been at this job for thousands of years. The greatest intelligence in the universe outside of the Godhead. And you mean to tell me he hasn't learned a few things? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness. There are principalities behind superpowers. There are principalities behind uh, ideologies. World rulers of darkness. Marxism isn't just flesh and blood. It is a spirit from hell. It is demonic. Islam is not just some benign, benevolent sister religion of Judaism and Christianity. It is something to do with a world ruler of darkness that is invisible, a power in the unseen world. That's why I read Revelation chapter 8. Oh, what a marvelous chapter. There were the Now, I'm not going to give you an interpretation of it. I'm just going to draw your attention to a principle. There there were the seven angels just about to sound when the Lord said to John, Now, wait, wait, wait. Don't go on about that. Watch. And John watched, and suddenly an angel appeared, and he had a golden censer full, it says... Uh, of the prayers uh, of the saints. And he added into it the incense on the golden altar before God. In other words, you and I, when we know something about intercession, oh, my friend, you don't intercede until you know, until you feel you can't intercede. That's the beginning of real intercession. When you think that you can intercede and you give God a few minutes of the day or half an hour of the day and you feel very good for it, that's prayer, not intercession. But once you've got to real intercession, it's like something conceived in your being by the Spirit of God that cannot get out except through labor pain. And you've got it all trapped inside. And you can't express it. I once went to a prayer meeting and uh, I, uh, I, I heard a, a great noise over on one side. Whoa, and I became rather disturbed by these noises. So I, I lifted up my head to look and the pastor tapped me on the shoulder and he said, don't worry, brother. He has the ministry of groaning. <laughs> oh, I said, thank you, and put my head down. <laughs> After the meeting was over, the pastor said, would you like to meet the brother who has the ministry of groaning? <laughs> I said, I would most certainly like to meet this brother because to me it is a miracle. Oh, he said, a miracle. Yes, I said, a miracle, because in Romans 8 it says groanings which cannot be uttered.
Recently, in my trip to the United States, I went to a place which has a clinic for groaning. <laughs> teaching people how to groan. Oh, my friends, what's happened to us? What has happened to us? I remember a husband coming up to me on one occasion and saying, Oh, can you help me, brother? My wife, I don't know what, she just seems to have gone out of her mind. Really? I said, Well, what has happened? I know, I know some wives do go out of their minds. But I said, What is the problem with your wife? He says, She's got into this vicarious intercession. Vicarious intercession? I said, what is vicarious intercession? Well, he said, she goes and shuts herself in a cupboard and screams. <laughs> oh, my friends, don't you think hell itself laughs at some of the antics of God's people? Travail begins with a conception by the Holy Spirit. He conceives a burden in the spirit of a believer. And when that happens, it begins to fill that person with a kind of discomfort almost, a kind of disturbance, a kind of pain that cannot come out of them. And when they do pray, they pray, but they're conscious it's like an iceberg. Only 10% can be seen. The whole thing is trapped inside. And after they've prayed for a while, they feel better. But then the, the burden's back again. If you could only let it out, it cannot even be let out in groanings. It is something trapped within until it is born of God. But oh, my friends, when we really know something about intercession, we also know we need that angel of God who adds in the incense of the beauties and glories of the Lord Jesus. That's what we need. We feel so weak. We have such a huge burden and such an enormous thing to pray for. And we don't know because we are so insignificant and so unworthy. We really don't know how to pray as we ought. But then we find the Spirit himself maketh intercession with groanings which cannot be uttered but which are according to the will of God. That is tremendous. And see what happens. First the angel brings the prayers of the saints and adds the incense, uh, all the attributes, all the qualities, all the glories, all the beauties of the Lord Jesus, of His. For after all, who is the intercessor? It is the Messiah at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. He is the intercessor. And I see intercession as something to do with the organic union of the members with the head. So that out from the head spills by the Holy Spirit into the members of the body the burdens that are upon the heart, as it were, of the head. And what happens? Would to God every prayer meeting had something like this. He filled it with the fire of the altar and cast it upon the earth and there followed thunders and voices and lightnings and an earthquake. And the next moment the seven angels were ready to sound and the first sounded and the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth. Oh, to be in prayer like that. 
My friends, the prayer meeting is often the dullest meeting in the routine life of the church. Let's be honest. You go along there to hear the world tours where we go all around the world. Or the shopping list prayers. Or the lovely horizontal sort of information giving. You know, in the guise of prayer as if God doesn't know where Mrs. So-and-so lives and everything to do with her. But we give it all out, you know, as if he doesn't know. It's all information for one another. Or sometimes it's the most wonderful sermonettes which are preached in prayer. Someone once said, the prayer meeting is the gathering place of frustrated preachers. Very rarely is there ever a place shaken after a prayer meeting. And even more rarely is there evidence in the boldness with which the servants of the Lord preach and the signs and the wonders that follow. But when we are involved in the things of God and in the purpose of God and it is the Spirit of God who conceives the burden in our heart and then begins, as it were, to develop the burden so that in the end we have to give ourselves to God for real intercession is not just time given on your knees alone. You can be at the kitchen sink. You can be at the workbench. You can be in the hospital. You can be in the college. You can be in a meeting and the things going on all the time in your spirit. You don't get away from it. Then, my friend, we suddenly find ourselves unworthy and insignificant and little as we are in the goings of God. We're caught up into the purpose of God and its realization. Glory be to God. How marvelous it is for all of us to be so introduced into the purpose of God. Angels here, angels there, tremendous activity in the heavenlies, great battles in the unseen, all because God's people are somehow or other standing together with the intercessor through the Holy Spirit. Now, my friends, my subject for this evening is the prayer battle for Israel. I have been involved for quite a few years in prayer battle, but I have to tell you that I know of no more enormous and ferocious prayer battle than the battle for Israel. And I believe that that is the evidence, and I don't care what my beloved brothers and sisters say who believe that we're in a diversion. I can only say that I believe that is the evidence of how this thing lies on the heart of God. People tell me that this whole Israel question is a cul-de-sac, a spiritual cul-de-sac, a spiritual dead end. They, they say that it is a diversionary tactic of the enemy to take us away from the building of the church. Now I have to tell you, that this whole subject of Israel has drawn to itself Christian nutcases, eccentrics, and cranks of the first order. <laughs> I have the greatest sympathy with poor pastors who say to me, oh, I've got one of those Israel nutcases in my congregation. 
Because all these people do is talk about Israel, 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 Israel. They're never in a prayer meeting. They're never in the front line of anything. They just talk about Israel. They only talk about prophecy. I understand people being sick to death of the thing. That's not the line I, I, by the grace of God I've come along. I say again and again, I fully understand some of the problems that some of our brethren have on this matter of Israel. But having said that, can anyone uh, uh, give me an adequate answer? I have been involved with intercession movements for years. And with the intercessors all over the world, I have just come back from the conference of intercessor, international intercessor leaders from 34 countries. Why is it that in every one of those intercession movements, including the countries of the third world, so hostile to Israel, that the second country to their own country, which is most prayed for, is Israel. How come that the people of God all over the earth who are involved in the battle, the prayer battle for the purpose of God, have got Israel so much on their hearts. When I go to a country like Norway, and somewhere in some country area, a dear old lady who's never been out of Norway in her life comes up to me and clasps my hand and says, Brother, I don't know what it means, but a few weeks ago God woke me up, and I spent the whole night in prayer for Israel. She hardly knows where Israel is. And yet there she is, laboring in the secret place in prayer for Israel. When you can multiply that, not a thousand times, but I would think something nearer five thousand times in my little ministry, what is God doing? If people were only studying prophecy and getting fascinated with predicted battles and dates and cataloging them all and pigeonholing them all well I, I, would, I could dismiss the whole thing as some counterfeit something that the enemy is doing but when I find the people who are in the forefront of prayer for the, for the fulfillment of God's purpose concerning the church and in the forefront of the prayer battle concerning God's purpose for the gospel to be preached to all nations so that the end can come. And when I find people who have got an understanding by the Spirit of what the Lord is wanting in our day and generation, and then I find that they can weep tears for the Jewish people and for Israel, I have only to recognize it must be of God. Cranks are cranks, but intercessors are intercessors. That leads me to say this. God will not forsake Israel. Her preservation, her development, and her triumph are certain. More 
certain than my standing here tonight. If I were to die in the next week, you will still, many of you, live to see the absolute certainty of Israel's triumph. Furthermore, if we have seen overwhelming odds against Israel, we are going to see even more overwhelming odds in the days that lie ahead. It is part of God's remarkable plan. I read in the prophet Jeremiah and chapter 31 and from verse 35 these amazing words. Thus saith the Lord, who giveth thee the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, who stirreth up the sea so that the waves thereof roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If these ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, then will I also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. God will not forsake Israel. God, in fact, is using Israel in her blindness and in many agnosticism to demonstrate minutely the accuracy and the relevance of his word for today. For instance, take Zechariah chapter 12. I mean, what on earth was the prophet meaning when he said, I will make Jerusalem a cup of reeling unto all the peoples round about and upon Jerusalem. And then he goes on, all that burden themselves with it shall be sore wounded. I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone. Now in the authorized version, it's so beautiful, isn't it? A cup of reeling, a burdensome stone. The very words sound so poetic and so soft. But what do they mean? They mean that God will make Jerusalem a cup or goblet of wine into which has secretly been introduced a drug. So that when the person drinks it, they unwittingly drink the drug that impairs their otherwise splendid faculties. And they start to do things that they would not otherwise have done. And take a burdensome stone. If I say to you, a stone so heavy that it ruptures you, you'd understand. Once you've been ruptured, you don't lift anything else again. But um, in the last 1,900 years, when has Jerusalem ever been such a cup of reeling or such a burdensome stone? My dear friends, it says in the same passage, all the nations of the earth will be gathered together against Jerusalem. Who on earth would want to come against Jerusalem? 
hundred years ago, what was Jerusalem a hundred years ago? A broken down, flea-bitten, dirty, provincial town in the Judean hill country. A backwater of the Ottoman Empire. It was the capital of nothing. I suggest that no one would want to fight over Jerusalem 100 years ago. Mark Twain said, dirt, smells, and nothing else. Another friend of mine says, yells, smells, and bells. One hundred years ago, who would want Jerusalem? It was the capital of nothing. What did it represent? It was ruled either from Cairo or Baghdad or Damascus or Constantinople. Only for a hundred years in the Christian crusader kingdom was it the capital of anything. What about uh, 45, 50 years ago? It was very much more cleaned up. But it was still the capital of nothing under the British mandate. And I don't want to be rude to you. The British did a splendid job with Jerusalem. But it was the capital of nothing. Can you imagine all the nations of the earth being gathered together against Jerusalem 45 or 50 years ago? But tonight, my friends... If I said to you, can you imagine the nations of the earth being gathered together over Jerusalem and concerning Jerusalem and against Jerusalem? And I doubt that there would be anyone in this congregation who would say, I cannot imagine it. The fact of the matter is this. This Jerusalem is now heard every day on the radio, every day on television, every day it's written in your newspaper. There are countless resolutions passed by the Security Council and by the General Assembly of the United Nations about Jerusalem, 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 Jerusalem. What has happened? The words of our Lord Jesus have been fulfilled. And they shall be taken captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And on the 7th of June, 1967, in a lightning move on the part of the Israel Defense Forces, the old city of Jerusalem was taken, reunited with the West to become the capital of Israel, ratified by an, an act of Knesset on the 30th of July, 1980, in which the words appear which have never before appeared in the annals of constitutions or parliamentary resolutions. Jerusalem is the eternal and indivisible capital of Israel and of the Jewish people. The times of the Gentiles are over. My dear friends, I think God is proving something in his word. You young people now, you hear all the time, Jerusalem, 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 Israel, Israel, Israel. It's hard for you to imagine that 40 years ago there was no Israel. In fact, not only was there no Israel, but there was little possibility of Israel being a fact. Now it is a fact. It's not just a fact. It is at the center of the world platform. And it's as if the whole world is forever discussing Israel 
and Jerusalem. I said uh, this afternoon about the so-called West Bank. I'm not going to go over that again because I've explained it to you, but let me just say one thing, that in this same Jeremiah 31 and in verses 5 and 6, he says, Again shalt thou plant vineyards upon the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit thereof. For there shall be a day that the watchmen upon the hills of Ephraim, that is Samaria, shall cry, Arise ye and let us go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. Or again in the same chapter, and this is only just a sample uh, of many others, in verse 23 and 24, yet again shall they use this speech in the land of Judah and in the cities thereof, when I shall bring again their captivity. The Lord bless thee, O habitation of righteousness, O mountain of holiness, and Judah and all the cities thereof shall dwell therein together, the husbandmen and they that go about with flocks. You see, my dear friends, when Christian people tell me that they believe that Israel is the fulfillment of a divine program and of God's prophetic word, but they cannot agree with the West Bank, I have to choke. Because the present day Israel has in fact only got the land of the Philistines and the Galilee and the Negev. The heartland, the heart of the promised land is Judea and Samaria. So either we must be altogether against this thing or if we believe that God is fulfilling something, then we have to take note of these scriptures which are specifically related to Samaria and Judea. And I have only mentioned just those two. But if you go through, you will find it again and again and again and again and again. God will not forsake Israel. On the question of Jerusalem and the question of her boundaries, God will not forsake Israel. Even more important, the greatest and ultimate miracle before which all the other miracles of Israel's modern history will pale into insignificance is the miracle of redemption. And that, in my estimation, is one of the next things that will happen. I don't know how far away it is, but I believe that we are moving irrevocably, invincibly, inexorably toward that ultimate miracle of redemption when, as it says in the book, it will be their fullness in place of their loss and their fall and their being received again in place of their being cast away. Now, some people tell me that we are quite in error because we base so much on the Old Testament. And they say, look, here we have a New Testament. And the New Testament is the thing for Christians. And the New Testament says absolutely nothing about a restoration of Israel. My friends, we don't have to depend on the Old Testament for this matter. In the New Testament, it is as clear as the Old Testament. For what did the Apostle Paul mean when he said, 
Did they stumble, that is the Jewish people, did the Jewish people stumble that they might fall? God forbid. But by their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if their fall is the riches of the world, and their loss the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Now, what kind of exegesis is it that takes one sentence from the Roman letter and insists that the fall and the loss of the Jewish people is national, political, territorial, economic, and spiritual? But in the same sentence, their fullness is only individual and spiritual. If the apostle has said, now if their fall, upon which all the rabbis and all Christian uh, scholars are united, is a national, territorial, political, economic, and spiritual fall, Surely, their fullness will be a national, territorial, political, and economic, as well as spiritual fullness. Then again, take verse 15. Now, if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, everybody has agreed that the casting away of them was not involved territory. It, it, it involved national institutions. It involved their capital. It involved their statehood as well as their spiritual status. If the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what will the receiving of them be but life from the dead? I say from the New Testament, it is perfectly clear that there will be some kind of salvation. And the apostle goes on to argue. For he says, Now if you were wild olive branches, and because of God-given faith, were grafted into the good olive tree, don't glory over the branches. However many millions of Gentiles there are, glory over the root. For the branches don't bear the root, but the root thee. Then he goes on and says this, for if thou wast cut out of that which is by nature a wild olive tree and wast grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these which are the natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? What is their own olive tree? Their own olive tree is the church. He then goes on, for I would not, brethren, have you ignorant, lest you be wise in your own conceits, that a hardening in part hath befallen Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so shall all Israel be saved. How wonderful. That means that you are wild olive branches, but you're not secondary second-class citizens. You are as much citizens as those Jews under the old covenant who really believed and were saved by the grace of God. 
You are in the company not only of all the Old Testament saints, but of all those great Jewish characters of the New Testament. John and James and Andrew and Peter and Stephen and Apollos and Timothy and Paul. These are the great company of Jewish ones saved by the grace of God. The fact that it has now left behind its Hebrew and Jewish roots and gone out to the ends of the world and gathered into the branches, into the tree, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of wild olive branches does not make one whit of difference to the fact that the tree is still the Jewish people's own olive tree out of which they have been cut and laid on one side. This is why he goes on to say, as touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as touching the election, they are beloved for God's sake. And then he says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I've heard some sermons on that. I've never heard many that have related it to its context. That is to the Jewish people. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They are enemies, as touching the gospel, for your sake. But as touching divine election, they are beloved. Not they were. They are beloved for the Father's sake. And then he says, For as ye in time past were disobedient to God, but now have obtained mercy by their disobedience, even so have these also now been disobedient that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now obtain mercy. The whole thing comes full circle. You came in through their disobedience. You obtained mercy through their disobedience. Now they are disobedient, and you have obtained mercy, that they may also obtain the same mercy that you have obtained. And the poor Paul ends up by the Holy Spirit saying, For God hath shut up all unto disobedience, that he might have mercy upon all. Now, my friends, all I really wanted to say in this is that Israel's redemption is the key to the battle. People sometimes say to me, what is all this talk about Israel? All this excitement about Israel and the Jewish people. Why are you exciting everybody on this subject in this manner? Are we to be involved with the politics of another nation? The economics of another nation? The military situations in another nation? We're not, we, don't, we wonder whether we should be even involved in our own. But that isn't that the, the normal Christian attitude? We're called out of all this thing. My friends, don't treat the powers of darkness as imbecilic. As if they're pariah dogs that have very little sense. Those powers of darkness know intuitively that in the Jewish people, the last ultimate miracle of redemption is going to be wrought in order for the purpose of God to be closed. And therefore, they will liquidate that people 
by every means available to them before such a miracle can take place. Just like Satan put it into the head of Herod the Great to kill all the little children, all the boys under two years of age, to destroy the Messiah and stop the work of God's salvation. But he failed. In the same way, Satan put into the head of Adolf Hitler and those Nazi henchmen to destroy the Jewish people in their millions in order to frustrate any possibility of a recreated Jewish state. But God turned the Holocaust and made it the dynamic for the state of Israel. So it is that now we're in a colossal battle in which the enemy is seeking to isolate the Jewish people with a growing tide of anti-Semitism on all sides in which sadly some Christians have got involved. The aim of those powers of darkness is to frustrate, paralyze, or undo the purpose of God. It will not be possible. What does it mean if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world? What will the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Is there any quality more needed amongst the people of God to carry them through the last phase of world history than resurrection, life, and power? That's why the enemy is seeking to strangle Israel economically. That's why he's trying to bring about political tensions and divisions within the nation. That's why he's using social problems within the people. That's why he is seeking uh, politically to isolate Israel and finally destroy her, fragment her. This is the call to prayer. I thank God for every true believer who has seen the nature of the church, the body of our Lord Jesus, the bride of Christ, and who knows something about that travail that only the Holy Spirit can conceive in the heart. But my friends, there are multitudes of natural branches that have got to come back into the good olive tree. And the purpose of God for the church will never be fulfilled until that great unnumbered multitude can be brought back. Like Daniel we can start to pray. Well, some people say to me, yes, but surely all the Jewish people are going to be saved when they see the Messiah. I have never been able quite to understand this teaching. When I look at Zechariah chapter 12, it says, For I will pour upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they shall look unto me whom they shall pierce whom they have pierced. It doesn't say, as unfortunately translated in some versions, they shall look on me. If I look upon the queen, 
That means I physically see her with these eyes. But if I look toward the queen or unto the queen, there's something about a kind of respect, an inner feeling that I have for her. Do you understand? And in the Hebrew it says, they shall look unto me whom they have pierced. And then it speaks about them being um, uh, uh, mourning, husbands and wives apart. All these different families. And people might wonder, what on earth is all this about? This family, husbands and wives apart. That family, husbands and wives apart. That family, husbands and wives apart. But the whole point is a reference to Jewish burial customs. It is the Shiva, the seven days in which husbands and wives must spend those seven days apart because of a death, because of mourning. And then the 30 days. That doesn't sound like a sudden instantaneous conversion of the whole people automatically. It sounds like a work of the Holy Spirit working so on the heart that something will happen inside whereby the Jewish people will mourn and seek God. And this is what I think our Lord Jesus meant when he said, He shall no more see my face until you shall say, Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. I have never thought anyone running away into the holes and caves of the earth would say, Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. It sounds a very strange way of doing it. In Hebrew, Baruch Haba means welcome. And so it would really mean welcome in the name of the Lord. Something has happened. This is the call to prayer. God's great, if God's purpose is going to be fulfilled, there is a need for strong, hard, soldier-like prayer. We need to pray for the gospel that it will go out to the ends of the earth. We need to pray for the church. But we need to pray for Israel. We are now facing a period, I believe, of unparalleled turmoil, of upheaval and crisis. But God has already won. You know, I heard a little while ago when I was in the States of a young brother, he had just come the week before to the company in which I was speaking and had enthralled the whole people by one little comment that he made. He was a rough diamond, and he didn't know his Bible very well. But he said, you know, folks, I can't copy his accent, but you know, folks, he said, I peeked at the end of the book and found with one. <laughs> mm. I remember some years ago, and with this I must end, a fellow who was amongst us, from a rather worldly background who got gloriously saved and delivered, stood up at the Lord's table one Sunday morning with a little word of encouragement. He said, I was depressed yesterday, and they went back home and found the boys, his boys, watching the television. And he said they were watching a horse race. Well, now, he used to, of course, put money on the horses, and he got quite excited watching the horses, you see. And he said, then these two got neck and neck, and they went and they went round the thing, and he said, finally, he said, it looked as if they were absolutely 
together. They went across the line. And the announcement came over that the stewards would meet. They would play back the, uh, the film and would make a decision. And finally the decision was made. Such and such a horse won by a head. Now you might wonder what on earth was a Christian at the Lord's table talking about horse racing. But he said, suddenly the Lord said to me, you see, the tail of that horse had already won because the head was over the line. <laughs> My beloved friends, our head's gone over the line. We've won. What we need above everything else now is not just to be fatalistic, but as the tail, as it were, to get into the whole business of real prayer and intercession, that what God has won and what God has said will be fully secured and fully realized. Dear, dear people of God, what a privilege. Some people are so afraid of these days in which we live, of all the possibilities, but what a privilege to be in these days and to be caught up in the goings of God. Thank you.